you turn with me in your Bibles or if you just want to look up to the Sky Bible, uh, I'm going to read a short passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, we're going to stay in here almost the whole time. I'll probably recite it more than one time. Uh, but it's Matthew 11. Uh, we're going to read verses 28 through 30, a very familiar passage. And it says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you uh, for the moments that we share Lord, I thank you for the word, your word that is so powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, I pray that they would penetrate our, our deep recesses of our lives, Father, and they would just communicate life to us. Lord, I pray that we would not leave this place the same way we came in, Father, and that only happens by your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you here to this place, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you are dog lovers? Can I see a show of hands? Like, you love dogs? Um... My wife and I got our first dog uh, a year and a half ago, and I, when I grew up, I never owned an animal uh, besides like a goldfish or something, so I, I wasn't real familiar with dogs, um, and upon uh, owning my own dog, I realized there are basically two, people, two kinds of people in the world, people that love dogs and people are just kind of like, eh, you know, not too high on them, and, and when you come through my doors of my home, usually one of the first questions I'll ask you is, are you a dog person? And if you say no, I, that, that's a signal to me. I got to put the dog away because she's going to be going crazy. If you say yes, I'll let her playfully do all that kind of stuff. For me, I'm not a dog person, all right? I don't like slobber, I don't like hair, and I don't like smells. Three things that are characteristically common among dogs. But I found something out. I would often take my dog for a walk with my daughter, and I would come across these dog people. Okay, because they would be walking their dog simultaneously. And when I would come to them, they don't necessarily address me first or my lovely, beautiful daughter. They go straight for the animal. They just start, start talking about, oh, how are you doing? And not only are they talking, usually they bend down on one knee and the dog's just like, you know, and they're just, they're just loving up on the dog. The dog's loving up on them. And I usually have the same reaction every single time. Listen, I see what dogs eat and I see what they lick. I want no parts of that, okay? Listen, I saw somebody in an ice cream store sharing an ice cream cone with a dog. Now, I'll do it with my daughter, not my dog, man. That is like off limits. And I was walking this one particular day and uh, this lady came at me and she had like two very small dogs, probably the size of a brick, just to give you some kind of uh, ratio. So it's like the size of a brick. One was, one was like a lighter whitish color and the other one was a dark chocolatey color. And uh, I have this dog, she's 65 pounds of muscle, okay? She's an American bully. She's built like a weightlifter and uh, she's a very docile dog, but she's still a dog. And so every time I pass one of these dog people, I always get the leash real tight, make sure Coda is by my side, because I don't know what she's going to do. So this, this lady's, Coda's just like, you know, happy walking down the road. And this dog's lady, or this lady's dogs are going bonkers. I'm talking like, I mean, like, like nutsy, all right? So I'm thinking, great. You know, Coda doesn't need a snack right now. And so I, I try to peacefully, you know, pass her. And she looks at me, and she's one of the dog people. She's like, oh, your dog is so beautiful. Can they meet? I'm like, 
Can they meet? This isn't caninemingle.com, lady. Listen, you realize my dog will eat your dogs for lunch. And I'm literally paranoid as I'm holding my dog, praying she doesn't take a bite out of the little ho-ho and Twinkie, okay? I'm just hoping Coda doesn't snap, and this lady's weeping because, like I said, her dog was lunch. And the reason why that thought crosses my mind is because a dog has a nature, one nature. Yes, we've sort of domesticated them, we've trained them well, but a dog still has a nature. And oftentimes, they can act out according to that nature. We know this in, in the natural world. We have things called apex predators, things like sharks and lions. Listen, if you put blood in the water, sharks are going to attack. 10 out of 10 times, they're going to go after that blood because their nature is, I smell blood, that's dinner, let me go get it. There is no changing that. They'll rip a seal apart, and you know what? They don't feel bad about it. They think about, okay, where can I get my next seal? They're not thinking, oh, man, that poor little seal. But my wife watches National Geographic. She's like, John, turn it. I can't watch. I'm like, babe, it's the animal kingdom. God made them. How, how are they supposed to eat? They can't go to Applebee's. Like, but she gets turned off, not apex predators. If men are not eating their meal, they're looking for their next meal because that is in their nature. Lions are the same way. They attack. And then we, you know, you'll see something on the news, one animal attacks, where you'll have this lion that goes bonkers in a circus and takes off somebody's leg or something, and everybody's shocked. How could this lion do such a thing? Because he's a lion. That's what lions do. But as humans, we also have a nature. In fact, the Bible says we have a sin nature. We're born into that. You can't help it. You can't change it. It's the way, it's your default wiring which basically means that you live your life from birth bent away from God. Your natural tendency is to do things contrary to his word. We just have to look at little children and find that out. You don't teach a kid to be selfish. You don't teach a kid to steal. That's naturally inside of them. But when we become saved, when our eyes are opened, our spirit becomes regenerate, and we begin to live with two natures. We have that we take on, we're a new creation, the Bible says. We're a new man, but yet we still struggle with our old nature. If we didn't, we'd never sin after we become saved. And the message series that we're in is the war inside of me. It's that battle against that other nature. It's that battle that, just want, that, that we want to fly off the handle when somebody makes us mad. What causes that? That's not godly. We deal with things in life. We deal with sin. The Bible talks a lot about us, us coveting other things. Do you realize the Bible talks more about coveting possessions than it does drunkenness? It's funny that oftentimes we pick and choose what we want to highlight. It talks more about us wanting things, desiring things. Oh man, I wish I could have that. Basically describing the American culture. We have pride issues, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. Not tonight, this morning. We're losing it. I want to talk about pride because it's a battle that every single one of us in this room has. Now let me give you two reasons why this has to be addressed, okay? It's something that you must deal with because this is what the scripture says, not what John says. John, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. 
God opposes the, pr the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life opposed to God. That could not be a good thing. In fact, I'm acutely aware of the need of grace in my life. I need the grace. I don't need the opposition. So if the pride's the obstacle, I have to get it out. Number two, it affects the way we view other people. Everybody has a story. Maybe I'm a people watcher where you're at a restaurant and somebody disrespects the waiter. You know, they think they're better than them because they're serving them and they're, they're rude to them. They're ignorant. Why do they treat them like that? Because they think they're better. They think because they're tipping that oh, that makes, you know, that gives them the right to say whatever they want to them. It's not how it works. Jesus even references this. He says in Luke 18, 9 through 14, he tells a story about a Pharisee that goes into the temple. Stands up to pray. The Pharisee goes in and a tax collector goes in. The Pharisee stands up, holds his hand up, hands up. And he prays, looking up to God. God, thank you I'm not a sinner. Thank you I don't do everything that everybody else does and starts listing sins. Lord, I give 10%. I fast. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And then the tax collector who was a cheat, a thief, a robber, he basically had his head down the whole time. He said, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus went on to say, who do you think was justified? Who do you think? Because it affects the way we view other people. The two greatest commandments Jesus gave, love God and love other people. If God's opposing you, you're not loving God. If you're looking down on somebody, if you're prideful, you're not loving other people. So it's something that must be dealt with. But here's the issue. Pride is so hard to spot. It's a blind spot. How many people will be honest this morning and say, I struggle with pride? Okay, I kind of build it up a little bit. How many, now let me ask you another question. How many people know of somebody that struggles with pride? you were honest, every hand in this room would go up. It's easy to spot in other people, but not always easy to spot in our own lives. In fact, Jesus spoke to this as well. He said, you look at the speck in your brother's eye. You have a log in your own. Take your, your log out before you could even see. Do you realize the hyperbole here, what he's saying? He's in essence saying, listen, you've got the microscope out looking at your brother, and you can see yours from outer space. <laughs> Notice that. It's easy for you to see that little tiny thing in somebody else's life, but you can't see the huge thing in your own. Pride is so hard to recognize in our own life. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to backdoor it. We're not going to talk about what not to be. We're going to talk what to be. Because I believe that there's greatness in humility. Now, I don't know about you, but those words almost seem like they oppose each other. Greatness, humility. See, when I think of greatness, when I was growing up in college, I had this five-foot poster of an athlete. This athlete was named Muhammad Ali. As a young man, you know, I wasn't, 
aware of his political, you know, stance or even the religious aspect of it. All I really knew is that he was a boxer. He was a good boxer. And what was his claim to fame? What did he go around telling everybody on the planet? I am the greatest. Told everybody, I am the greatest. Listen to the, some of the stuff he said. It's hard, to be, it's hard to be humble when you are as great as I am. At home, I'm a nice guy. But I don't want the world to know. Humble people I found don't get very far. Another quote. I'm the most recognized and loved man that ever lived. Because there weren't no satellites when Jesus and Moses were around. So people far away in the village di villages didn't know about them. And there was one time that I, I heard him say that he wasn't the greatest. And it was in his heyday. He said, I am not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. He actually said that. What is the double greatest? Does that word even, does that even exist? But he was very confident. He was very cocky. I thought, this is how you tackle life. This is how you're successful. I want to be the greatest. And I would look at that picture as I would go out to take a, a test. And I, I would be like, oh, let's get it, you know. Flow like a butterfly. Sting like a queen bee. So, I, I, you know, the poster was Muhammad Ali. And on the, the, the mat was Sonny Liston. Uh, he had beat him in the first round in the first minute. So he's like flexing over him, like as he's laying there. So this box, this professional boxer lost within a minute. Okay, so Muhammad Ali had a right to be arrogant. So I would see that, and I would be pumped up for my test, and then I would come home, and I would lay down like Sonny Liston, because I got pummeled, all right? But I am the greatest. Everybody wants to be great. And that's why we take on new ventures. That's why we open businesses. Greatness is okay, but you got to be great at the right things. You know, there are three people in the Bible that their faces visibly shone, like glowing. One of them was Moses. The Bible tells us when he came down from Mount Sinai, his face was glowing, but he didn't know it. Everybody else did. Everybody's like, whoa, 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 Moses, you got to cover that up. You're like a human highlighter, buddy. Like, we can't see. You know what Moses was known for? The humblest man that ever walked the earth. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus, his face shone at the transfiguration. The Bible tells us the same thing. His face was like the sun. You can't look into the sun. Go try it. You can't. You can't put your sunglasses on and look into the sun. The Bible says his face shone like the sun. And the other was Stephen in the book of Acts. The Bible says when he was about to be killed, his face shone like an angel. It lit up. Other people recognized, man, there is something different about him. You know what I think it was? I think it was the humility in their life. They never tried to elevate themselves up. Jesus actually said that somebody was the greatest human once. Believe it or not, it wasn't Muhammad Ali. It was a man by the name of John the Baptist. Let me just read that real quick. It's, it's actually uh, a few verses prior to the verse we just read in Luke's, uh, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 7. It says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. 
So John's a topic of conversation. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, now listen to this, among those born of women, which is basically everybody, right? Everybody came from their mom, all right? There has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Nobody greater. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus says nobody is greater than John. You know what John was known for? Preparing the way for Jesus. The Bible said he was just a voice. In fact, when most people encountered his ministry, he had to tell them who he was not. I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not. I'm not. Could you imagine having to introduce yourself that way? Of who you are not? Uh, this is kind of a, a small example of this, but around Pittsburgh, I kind of look like a, a Pittsburgh penguin, Pascal Dupuy. All right? Uh, and believe it or not, people actually think I'm him on the streets and they'll approach me. I had a lady at Panera Bread give me my food and say, have a great day, Mr. Dupuy. And I was at a pirate game one time. I had about 15 drunk guys screaming my name, like, yeah, Dupuy. And I just kind of give them the thumbs up. I give them a smile. But you know what stinks when I have to tell them? Hey, I'm not Pascal. You know, I usually stop when they ask for an autograph. I feel like that's crossing the line, you know. If I sign his name, that's, that's kind of wrong. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could sign whatever. They probably wouldn't. I'd just be like, Shh. but I always feel like, oh, I'm not Pascal Dupuy. I'm just John Mayak, you know. I'm nobody. They don't care to know me. They don't care to know anything about me. They thought I was famous, you know. So I can resonate a little bit with that. Who you are not. That's how John basically had to introduce himself. Who I am not. Not only that, his ministry was in the wilderness. The wilderness. Now, we always look at wilderness experiences like the bad times in life. You know, we had to go through the wilderness. The Israelites had to go through the wilderness. That's where his ministry was. It was about 30 miles away from Jerusalem in the Dead Sea area. When I was in Israel, it was, a, uh, it was 60 degrees in Jerusalem. It was about 85 uh, in the Dead Sea area, and it's 30 miles away. It's hot. It's arid. In fact, it's in the region of where Sodom and Gomorrah was. So this is a very uh, desolate place. Um, but for John, this was not a stepping stone. This is where God called him to go, a voice crying in the wilderness. This is where he spent his life. Jesus said, who did you go out to see? Are you expecting like a king, like in nice clothes? We all know what John was, was famous for, what? He wore camel's hair, he ate bugs. Guy was probably a little weird, a little rough around the edges. See, Israel was, was expecting like Dan Marino, like the good-looking quarterback of the football team, athletic. What they got was Daniel Boone. Smelled like B.O., animals. But he was a humble man. You know how we know that? He told people, listen, there is one coming after me. I can't even carry his shoes. This guy is so great. I'm nothing. Don't look at me. Look to him. He's the real deal, not me. And then his famous line, I must decrease, 
so he must increase. Now this is a guy, even though he was rough around the edges, you know, physically, even though he was preaching in the wilderness, this guy had a ministry. People came out to the wilderness to hear him speak. Herod, the political force at the time, was very intrigued by John. Very intrigued. He, he, he opposed him in some areas, but he was like, this guy has something that nobody else has. You know, he kind of set the tone for the country. So Herod was very particular about how he dealt with him. Didn't want to kill him because he knew there was a riot. So this guy would be like a modern-day Billy Graham. Billy Graham wasn't in politics, but he sort of influenced it a little bit. You know, he had his hands everywhere type thing. This guy was well-respected. He was called from his, his birth. He was filled with the Spirit. He was the son of a, a priest. This guy had the pedigree, he had the heritage, he had the ministry. You know John's ministry lasted about one year and got his head chopped off? One year. One stinking year. John's ministry was to prepare the way and get out of the way. I must decrease so that he increases. And it's almost as if the more we increase in our life, God decreases and vice versa. So how do we put ourselves in a position to decrease? Because I think everyone in this room would say, yes, I want more of God. I want his influence to increase in my life. How do we do that? It's not easy. Let me tell you that. If you've ever did any kind of hiking, if you go uphill, it requires more effort, but downhill can be treacherous. Have you ever experienced that? You can roll an angle. I find it's harder to go downhill than it is to go uphill. When I was young, I used to fight. I mean like grade school. I used to fight for the top bunk. I wanted top bunk. I would go to camps. I would do a lot of youth retreats. And I would, do any, or I would go to camps at that age and I would fight for the top bunk. When I got older, I continued to go to youth retreats as a leader, as a speaker. And you know what I fight for now? The bottom bunk. The bottom bunk's a lot easier to get in and out of at my age. I'll throw kids out of there. If I go in late and all the, the bottom, get out of here right now. I got bottom bunk. I call it. It's a lot easier to get out of the bottom bunk. The valleys are where the water is. Rolls off the mountaintops. And so often we look for the mountaintop experiences, but the life is in the valley. So we got to get down to the valley. What did Jesus say? Mary chose the better part at the feet of Jesus, down low. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, give or take. You know what he said about himself? I'm the least of the, the apostles. I'm the least. In fact, he at one point called himself the chief of sinners. Matthew, in his own gospel, refers to himself as a tax collector. I don't know about you, but if I'm writing the book, I'm making myself look really good, okay? I'm editing out all the bad parts. He calls himself a tax collector. Mark, who most scholars believe that Peter uh, commissioned to write his memoirs, focuses more on Peter's faults than his successes. And Peter commissioned him to do it. John just referred to him as the disciple that Jesus loved. Luke wrote two books, Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke never signed his name once. We can't find his name once in either of the books, Luke or Acts. I believe later on in life these guys got it. They got it. 
and they made a difference. Humility is putting God in his rightful place and ours in our place. When the sun rises, the star fades. And yes, we shine in the darkness, but when that sun comes up, you can't even see the stars. Jesus is that sun. So back to our text. I chose this because I believe this is the invitation to greatness. Right here. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we're going to kind of fly through some of these. The reason why I say it's an invitation to greatness is the verse starts out with, come to me. Jesus doesn't demand us, though he could. He could demand. He could require it. But he said, come to me. If you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, if, you, if you're labor, some translation said, I know I'm kind of mixing this up a little bit. Some of it says if you labor. Have you ever labored for in your life, women, uh, with your children? I did a different kind of labor. Uh, you know, I worked for a roofing company. It, laboring is not fun, okay? It's work. It's tiring. It's wearying. Jesus says, if you're laboring, if you feel like the burden is too great, and this burden that he's talking about is the religion burden. Religion can burden us. It really can. And in that day, the Pharisees had 613 laws that they made the people abide by. And I'll tell you what, I spent time, like I said at the beginning of service, I love the Jewish people. I spent time there, but I got so, my mind was boggled about all the rules you had to follow. I was washing my hands one time. This is a true story. And there was a gentleman that was standing by like the paper towel dispenser. And like I went and ripped off the paper towel like on the Sabbath. And that, he couldn't do that. Like he was sort of appalled by that. And he waited for me to open the door so he could walk out. I'm like, my goodness, I'd be messing up all the time. That, that to me is a burden. So Jesus says, come to me. Come to me if you're burdened, if you're laboring, if you're weary. Listen, humble people know they need help. That's the first step. If you think you've got it all together, you're not going to see your need for God in your life. You won't. Jesus himself said, listen, I didn't come from the, for the healthy. I came for the sick. Now, obviously, we're all sick. We just don't know it. They didn't know it. But he's saying, these are the people I came for. If you think you're healthy and you're good, hey, that's great. Life will probably humble you somewhere along the line. But I came for the sick. The first step to humility is knowing that you need help. God, help me. Help me be better. I can't do this on my own. I can't be good. I can't. I do fly off the handle. I do fear things. I do get anxious. I do say things I shouldn't say to my spouse. The first step is to realize it and come to Jesus. And then the next thing says, I will give you rest. Now that sounds good when you're laboring and when you're heavy laden. Rest sounds good. And it is good. So he promises this whole idea of rest, which for me, I love taking naps. I love sleeping. I'm in, okay? But it's interesting what he follows it up with. Take my yoke upon you. Wait. A yoke is an instrument for work. It's interesting that that's what he prescribes. Here's the answer. Put this yoke on. I'm going, how about, can I get a recliner? Can I get like a four-day cruise vacation? Can I get something like that? I don't want a yoke. That sounds like more work, God. 
And what, hap- what has happened in the American church is we try to sell our Christianity, and when we preach, we promise that life will be great, and you know, you'll float on a cloud, and unicorns, and butterflies, and you know, and you know as well as I do, that's not the case. It's not. He says, take my yoke upon you. It's work. But let me tell you what a yoke does. A yoke is made for two animals, not just one. And this is good. Because we're not just yoked to another animal or even another, another, or another believer or another person. Now in marriage, we do use that idea of being yoked together with your spouse. We're yoked to Jesus. And that's good for two reasons. One, it gives us direction. Because you can't go astray when you're under that yoke. I mean, you can pull, but the idea is to go the same direction. So many people in life are looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning. You yoke yourself to Jesus, and you'll have purpose, and you'll have meaning. And the second thing the yoke does, it distributes the weight. So one animal's not pulling more than the other. I don't know about you, but if I've got to pick another horse or animal with me, I want God next to me, because he can pull a lot of weight, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit is. God never expected us to do life on our own. In fact, Jesus says, it's expedient that I go away, that I send the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit's our guide. He's our comforter. I often wonder why we don't see different, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's manifestations in our life. I often wonder if, if it's because that we make our lives so comfortable. What do you need a comforter if you're already comfortable? If you're never stepping out in faith and doing anything, what do you need the Holy Spirit for? Just a question. But I'm, I'm going to move along because time's evading us. Being yoked to Jesus gives us a purpose and a direction. And it also distributes the weight to pull. Malachi 6.8. To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly with God. You can't walk God and be, with God and be proud. All right? You can't. Because what are you going to brag about? Hey, God, I found out this cool fact about the Grand Canyon. He goes, yeah, I made it. So what? God, you know, I was in high school, was fourth down and ten, you know, they were coming at me. I, who cares? You can't be proud when you walk with God. It's impossible. That's why Malachi says, walk humbly with your God. He says, learn from me. Humble people don't know it all. They don't. Guys, I think I, I, we particularly love to fall into this category because we always think like we know the answer. If I don't know the answer, I'll either Google it or make it up. True story. One night, my wife and I were laying in bed just talking, and she was frustrated with feeding the baby. And mom, she's got so much work when it comes to the infant with breastfeeding and this and that. And she asked me this question out of the blue, out of the silence. She said, John, why do you think God made men with nipples? Because she was frustrated. Like, why do you have them and you can't feed your baby? Like, you should be able to share the workload here. And I kid you not. I go into like a 10-minute like, well, you know, the Bible calls us humankind, and so we're made in a kind. So even though we're male-female, we are separate. You know, obviously our reproductive parts are different, but we all have two eyes, we all have two ears. And I literally go off for like like seven to 10 minutes talking about this. And then it goes quiet. She goes, I was just kidding. (laughs) Men, we always think we know it all. All right, go on Facebook. Everybody's an expert. Something happens politically in the world, a news story. Everybody's the expert all of a sudden. Opinions are everywhere, and people love to share them. Humble people are willing to learn. 
And you just don't learn from anybody. He says, learn from me. We don't, we don't learn from Buddha. We don't learn, learn from Muhammad. We don't learn from inside ourselves or in nature. He says, learn it from me. Learn it from me. And then this is where it gets really good. This is kind of like the pinnacle. This is what he says to learn. To be meek and lowly of heart. He could have said, learn how to heal people, John. Learn how to preach to people. Learn how to pray, boy. You need, you need to learn that. You know what he says? He says, learn how to be meek and lowly of heart. Because that's the way Jesus is. He gives us a glimpse into his heart. Now, I know he had the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Phenomenal statements. This is the first time we see into Jesus' heart. He says, I am meek and lowly of heart. This is what I'm like. We're going to fast forward here a little bit. But humility is a heart issue. It is not behavior modification. It has to be dealt with in the heart. You can change your behavior. You cannot change your heart. You can't do it. Only God can do that. And that's where the humility is rooted out of. It's not about walking out of here and being a better person. You will fail. Your pride will resurface. It's allowing God to do heart surgery. I mean, we see this all the time with like, uh, you know, a celebrity gets a award. They stand up there and they go, I'm so humbled to get this great award that I'm the MVP of the league. And, and I think to myself, this guy has never been humble in his entire life. It's because it's not about just saying you're humble or doing humble things. It's about letting God change our heart. David was considered a man after God's own heart, right? I often wondered to myself, what was it about him that made God say that? Was it because he was this awesome warrior? I don't think so. You know why? When he went to build the temple, God said, I don't want you to do it. Your hands are bloody. You've killed people. So I, David, love you, love you, buddy. Not for you. We're going to let your son do it. So it wasn't because he was this powerful warrior that led Israel into its glory days. The golden age. Holding the sword. I believe David was a man after God's own heart because he was humble. And this is, this is why I believe that. One, he didn't kill Saul when he had the chance. Okay? He said, I will not touch the, the Lord's anointed. And the second is this. The greatest victory probably in David's life was the one that he was known for. Was killing Goliath. Do you realize... To my knowledge, there is not one psalm written about him beating Goliath. Never once did he ever write about it. Man, if that was today, it would be like this guy would be having conferences and writing books and speaking engagements and traveling the world, telling about his great exploit. This is how you defeat the giants in your life. Never once does he even write about him killing the giant, probably the greatest victory. I believe David was humble. He did what he was told. He was anointed king, and then he went back out to the fields. How crazy is that? And then his dad says, hey, I want you to take this bread and cheese to your brothers at the battlefield. He was just being obedient to what God said. Those who don't serve aren't qualified to slay. If you can't humble yourself and serve and, and do what God's called you to do, you'll never slay the giants, and then you will find rest for your soul. Scripture says, find rest, as if it's something to be sought out. You will find it, but you've got to look for it. You've got to look for it in the right area. God has two thrones, one in the highest of heavens and one in the lowest of hearts. His throne is not a love seat. He does not share it with anybody. If 
God is not on the throne of your life. You will never walk in victory. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes with me, we're going to transition here into communion if the worship team wants to come up. I just want you to close your eyes in in a moment of meditation. And I want to read a scripture to you from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. It says this. Listen closely with your eyes closed just to meditate. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and found in human form, he humbled himself. This is Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an example of humility. He was God and he came in the form of man. Wow. When he came to earth, he was born in a lowly manger. He was known as a mere carpenter, not the creator. Yes, he was recognized as a wise teacher, but not wisdom embodied like he was. Our passage from Matthew said he was lowly of heart, but not equal to the Father. And it was the night of Passover, after he had ridden a donkey, a king riding a donkey. He sat with his betrayer at a table. The very man that would sell him out, Jesus sat with. When you ate with somebody in that culture, it was an intimate experience. It wasn't just a grab and go. He ate with his betrayer. And the Bible tells us that he took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it. And he said these words, this is my body, which is broken for you. It should have been, this is your body broken for me. But he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it and do it in remembrance of me. And he broke the bread passed it around and he handed his betrayer the bread of communion 
He then took the cup and said, this is my, my blood poured out for you of the new covenant. Not the old burdensome covenant where they had to sacrifice animals constantly. And the blood only covered the sin. But as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin. This is the cup that is poured out in your new covenant. The new covenant. Take and drink. And after they had done that, the very next passage, the very next passage, a quarrel broke out. You know what it was over? Who was the greatest? How crazy is that? Jesus serving them and telling them what was about to happen. They're now talking about who's the greatest. This is what Jesus said to them. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. Even in this moment, Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to seek and serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is greatness. We are never more like our Savior when we walk in humility. So we're going to take communion now and do it typically how we how we did in the past where you'll come down the center aisle take the bread take the juice take some time to yourself this church practices open communion you don't have to be a member of the church to partake it's not the Catholic table it's not the Presbyterian's table it's not the Methodist table it's not the non-denom table it's the Lord's table and all those that have professed their faith in Jesus seek to live a life in obedience to him are worthy to come and commune with him just pray and ask that you would examine yourself this morning before you come and come expecting to commune with the Savior Father we do thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us Lord you deserve to be served but you came and served us gave your life as a ransom walked in humility what an example so, Father, I just pray that you would bless the elements, Lord, and as we partake, Lord, I pray that we would remember the magnitude of what happened and what it means for us as believers that we can be reunited with you. We can become sons and daughters of you. For that, I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.